0: This is London. Tonight, London is a city of song and celebration and thanksgiving. There are fireworks and parties. Air raid shelters are as remote as the covered wagon. Many words have been spoken and much drink has been consumed. London has been somewhat hysterical and still is. The organized killing has ended in Europe. The young men of many nations have suffered, sacrificed, and achieved victory. The coming months and years will reveal... What will be done with that victory? Edward R. Morrow, broadcasting from London. He is now gone, but the words he spoke still live. Words which made Edward R. Morrow one of the most distinguished reporters of our time. The words of Ed Murrow speak for themselves, spare and lean as the man himself. Referred to by many as prose poetry, these words form an anthology of our time. I first knew Ed Murrow here in the United States when he was a CBS program executive and not yet a broadcaster. Still ahead was the microphone career that would win him fame. His work as a reporter really began later, in March 1938, the month of the Anschluss, when Hitler annexed Austria. Murrow was based in Europe for CBS then and was not quite thirty years old. He got word the Nazis were crossing the border into Austria, rushed to Vienna and broadcast as the city awaited Adolf Hitler. This is Edward Murrow speaking from Vienna. It's now nearly 2.30 in the morning, and Herr Hitler has not yet arrived. No one seems to know just when he will get here, but most people expect him sometime after 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. It's of course obvious after one glance at Vienna that a tremendous reception is being prepared and we're planning to bring you an eyewitness account of Herr Hitler's entry into Vienna sometime tomorrow. We return you now to America. After Vienna, Ed went back to London to report the war that was sure to come. His broadcasts from the British capital during the Blitzkrieg made him a public figure in both England and America. His graphic use of phrases like, It's a bomber's moon tonight. Brought to a whole nation a closer understanding and a feeling of the ordeal the British were enduring. At the moment, everything is quiet. For reasons of national as well as personal security, I am unable to tell you the exact location from which I am speaking. Off to my left, far away in the distance, I can see just that faint, red, angry snap of anti-aircraft bursts against this steel blue sky. Mm-hmm. Now you'll hear two bursts a little nearer in a moment. They are hard, stony sound. Ed Morrow continued his rooftop vigils throughout the Battle of Britain as Hitler's planes battered London and the countryside. And although his broadcasts were not usually heard in Britain, they won him great fame and praise there, too. United States Ambassador John Winant and Presidential aide Harry Hopkins said... Murrow is the man of our country who is doing the greatest job of all, of interpretation and understanding, of morale building in England and the United States. That the British had such faith in him, I learned in a curious way firsthand when we changed places at the end of 1941. Ed had come back to New York for a while, and I had gone to London, and at least one English lady asked whether Mr. Murrow went back home because he knew Pearl Harbor was coming. But Ed was soon back in London, broadcasting reports like this one. There are no words to describe the thing that is happening. The courage of the people, the flash and roar of the guns rolling down the streets, the stench of the air raid shelter. In three or four hours, people must get up and go to work, just as though they had a full night's rest, free from the rumble of guns, and the wonder that comes when they wake and listen in the dead hours of the night. He had his own style and he pioneered a new profession. He hired and encouraged men like Eric Severide, William L. Shirer, Charles Collingwood, Howard K. Smith, David Schoenbrunn, Richard C. Hottelet, Bill Downs, Winston Burdett, Alexander Kendrick, and many others. He looked for new ways to report the war, created poetic images to describe what he saw. There was the night he took his microphone out into Trafalgar Square. One of the strangest sounds one can hear in London these days, or rather these dark nights, just the sound of footsteps walking along the street, like ghosts shod with steel shoes. More searchlights are in action. We've not yet seen any bursts of anti-aircraft fire overhead. And of course, this doesn't necessarily mean that there are planes actually over London at this moment. We've had these warnings before, of course. In the midst of the war, Ed Murrow went on the BBC to talk to British listeners about the common heritage and the common aims of the two countries. In my country, three times within a hundred years, there has appeared the possibility that we might achieve a new level of equality, security, and individual happiness. The first time was under the leadership of Abraham Lincoln at the end of our Civil War. The second was under Woodrow Wilson at the end of the First World War. And the third is now. If this war is to be anything other than a prelude to the Third World War, we must begin to use our common language to say to each other just what we mean. Neither one of us has any monopoly in the making of mistakes. But we are now engaged in a great war to determine whether or not we shall survive. Not just one of us, but both of us. News is fragile, Murrow felt. As well as facts, it is impressions and feelings, and sometimes it is fear. The terror of a bombing mission or a parachute drop. How do you communicate that to people unless you feel it yourself? Waiting to jump, walking out of this aircraft with no flak suit, no armor boarding on the ship. We're down just about to the top altitude now. A little more tracer coming up. The nine ships ahead of us have just dropped. You see the men swinging down. In just about 30 seconds now, our ship will drop, and these 19 men will walk out onto that soil. You can probably hear the snap as they check the lashing on the static line. We're throttle back now. There it goes. You hear them shout? Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 18. 15, 15, 15. Every man out. I can see their shoots going down now. Every man clear. They're dropping just beside a little windmill near a church, hanging there very gracefully, going to be completely relaxed. As I said a moment ago, like nothing so much as khaki dolls hanging beneath a green lampshade. Ed mullow could make you feel the story. He wrote for his medium, radio. His words swept you up and carried you along. You listened, and you were there where he was. You flew with him over Berlin and observed with him as he saw what he called orchestrated hell. No one seemed to be shooting at us, but it was getting lighter all the time. Suddenly, a tremendous big blob of yellow light appeared dead ahead, another to the right and another to the left. We were flying straight for them. Dead ahead, there was a whole chain of red flares. Looking like stoplights. Another lamp was combed on our starboard beam. The light seemed to be supporting it. Again, we could see those little bubbles of colored lead driving at us from two sides. The German fighters were at him. And then, with no warning at all, D Dog was filled with an unhealthy white light. I was standing just behind Jot and could see all the scenes on the wing. His quiet Scotch voice beat into my ears Steady, lads. We'd been coned. His slender body lifted half out of the seat as he jammed the control column forward and to the left. We were going down. Jock was wearing woolen gloves with the fingers cut off. I could see his fingernails turn white as he gripped the wheel. And then I was on my knees, flat on the deck, where he had whipped the dog back into a climbing turn. The knees should have been strong enough to support me, but, but they weren't. And the stomach seemed in some danger of letting me down, too. I picked myself up and looked out again. It seemed that one big searchlight, instead of being 20,000 feet below, was mounted right on our wingtip. D-Dog was corpse As he rolled down on the other side, I began to see what was happening to Berlin. The clouds were gone. And the stitch of incendiaries from the preceding waves made the place look like a badly laid-out city with the street lights on. The small incendiaries were going down like a fistful of white rice thrown on a piece of black velvet. As Jock hauled the dog up again, I was thrown to the other side of the cockpit. And there below were more incendiaries, glowing white and then turning red. The cookies... The 4,000-pound high explosives were bursting below like great sunflowers gone mad. And then as we started down again, still held in the light, I remembered that the dog still had one of those cookies and a whole basket of incendiaries in his belly, and the light still held it. And I was very frightened. I looked down, and the white fires had turned red. They were beginning to merge and spread, just like butter does on a hot plate. The bomb doors were open. And then there was a gentle, confident, upward thrust under my feet, and Boz said, Cookie gone. A few seconds later, the incendiaries went. And D Dog seemed lighter and easier to handle. I began to breathe and to reflect again that all men would be brave if only they could leave their stomachs at home. When there was a tremendous whoop, an unintelligible shout from the tail gunner, and D Dog shivered and lost altitude. I looked to the port side and there was a Lancaster that seemed close enough to touch. He had whipped straight under it. Mr. Spy, 25, 50 feet. No one knew how much. The navigator sang off the new course, and we were heading for home. I looked on the fourth beam at the target area. There was a red, sullen, obscene glare. The fires seemed to have found each other. And we were heading home. Berlin was a kind of orchestrated hell. A terrible symphony of light and flame. There were four reporters on this operation. Two of them didn't come back. Two friends of mine, Norman Stockton of Australian Associated Newspapers and Lowell Bennett, an American representing International the National News Service. There is something of a tradition amongst reporters that those who are prevented by circumstances from filing their stories will be covered by their colleagues. This has been my effort to do so. I have no doubt that Bennett and Stockton would have given you a better report of last night's activities. He was the first Allied war correspondent to see the horrors of the concentration camp at Buchenwald, and he doubted the power of his words to tell it adequately. When I entered, men crowded around, tried to lift me to their shoulders. They were too weak. Many of them could not get out of bed. As I walked down to the end of the barracks, there was applause from the men too weak to get out of bed. It sounded like the hand clapping of babies. As we walked out into the courtyard, a man fell dead. Two others, they must have been over 60, were crawling towards the latrine. I saw it, but will not describe it. In another part of the camp, they showed me the children. Hundreds of them. Some were only six. One rolled up his sleeve, showed me his number. It was tattooed on his arm. D, 6,030 it was. The others showed me their numbers. They will carry them till they die. The children clung to my hands and stared. We crossed to the courtyard. Men kept coming up to speak to me and to touch me. Professors from Poland, doctors from Vienna, men from all Europe. Men from the countries that made America. We proceeded to the small courtyard. There were two rows of bodies stacked up like cordwood. They were thin and very white. Some of the bodies were terribly bruised though there seemed to be little flesh to bruise. Some had been shot through the head, but they bled but little. It appeared that most of the men and boys had died of starvation. They had not been executed. But the manner of death seemed unimportant. Murder had been done at Pugenwald. God alone knows how many men and boys have died there during the last 12 years. As I left that camp, a Frenchman who used to work for Havas in Paris came up to me and said, you will write something about this, perhaps. And he added, to write about this, you must have been here at least two years. And after that, you don't want to write any anymore. I pray you to believe what I have said about Buchenwald. I have reported what I saw and heard, but only part of it. If I have offended you by this rather mild account of Buchenwald, I am not in the least sorry. If there was a single facet of Ed Morrow's work that made him the masterful reporter he was, it was his sense of involvement in the story he was covering. He was not really an aloof observer. He was an active participant. He lived the story, and you lived it with him. This is Piccadilly Circus, a rather small, open space in the center of London where in peacetime time the traffic used to go round and round and then spill out into five separate streets. But believe me tonight, there is no traffic in Piccadilly Circus. I can remember this place when it was completely empty and you could read a newspaper with the light of the flares dropped by German bombers. There was a time when our bomber boys said that you could walk on the when who were flying over the Ruhr, and tonight you could walk on the heads of people all the way across Piccadilly Circus. They are jammed absolutely tight. A few minutes ago, <laughs> a motorcycle went through <laughs> and there were four people on it and now people are throwing confetti at me. I'm <laughs> and down, and down on the side. Uh, with the policeman here, who has altogether inadequate protection, now we're just going to ask the policeman here what he thinks of the crowd and whether or not he has had any trouble. I think that a marvelous crowd. A grand lot of people, not causing us any disturbance whatsoever. Now, all I hope is that all our hope is you'll soon go home. We're just going to check that statement that we had from the policeman because there's another gentleman here from the Red Cross and St. John's Ambulance. That is the organization that takes care of the uh, casualties, shall we say, in this celebration. Have you had uh, many casualties today, sir? Well, it's not been too bad, you know, today. Uh, people have been very good on the whole. although the weather has been very close indeed. But uh, we may get a few extra tonight when we get more excited. <laughs> you <know? laughs> You don't think they've really got excited yet? They're not long so, About what time do you think they've really got going? Well, about midnight. About midnight? Right. Well, now, uh, here's an American soldier, uh, a talk I saw a real example of, uh, the victory spirit of England this afternoon when Winston Churchill spoke down, down below. By Downing Street, and if you ever saw a people following being in back of a leader, you should have seen the crowd cheer when he spoke his few words of victory. Incidentally, you may hear an occasional bang uh, uh, in the course of the next few minutes, but it's just uh, uh, effervescent people shooting off fireworks here in uh, Piccadilly Circus. The end of the war coincided with the beginning of the atomic age. For Morrow, it was a time to consider the past and gauge the future. At the historic instant, when the first atomic bomb seemed to charge out of the bowels of the earth, Professor George Kistakovsky remarked, I am sure that on doomsday, in the last millisecond, the last man on earth will see what we have just seen. In direct contrast, William Lawrence of the New York Times felt as though he were present at the dawn of creation when the Lord said, let there be light. If the universe is as many millions years old as we think it is, Our crowded little era of 13 years is but an instant of yesterday, when it is past. 1933's unemployment, September at Munich, that June 10th at Liturgy, December 7th at Pearl Harbor, 9.15 over Hiroshima, were all part of the identical moment. The one question remaining then, was it 23.59 o'clock or 00.01? Was there to be still another cycle of affliction, appeasement, and annihilation? Or had we walked through midnight, towards the dawn, without knowing it? After the war, Ed came back to the States and served for a while as head of CBS News. But he soon returned to the ranks of working newsmen. To a great extent, Murrow became the conscience of his profession. Together with Fred W. Friendly, Ed Murrow pioneered a new kind of broadcast journalism... A radio series called Hear It Now. When television came along, Hear It Now evolved into the See It Now broadcast. This is an old team trying to learn a new trade. When we started this series of programs, we had to decide where to do it from. We decided to do it right here from the studio. My purpose will be not to get in your light any more than I can, to lean over the cameraman's shoulder occasionally and say a word which may help to illuminate or explain what is happening. We're impressed with the importance of this medium. We shall hope to learn to use it and not to abuse it. Ed Morrow's work during the war taught him an affection for fighting men. His See It Now crew traveled to Korea at Christmas time, 1952. This is Korea, where a war is going on. That's a Marine digging a hole in the ground. They dig an awful lot of holes in the ground in Korea. What's the longest time you ever spent on one hill in this war? A six-eight, I believe it was. What was that? Heartbreak. They tell me that this gun is called Baby. Who named it, anyway? <laughs> well, how about it? Well, sir, it was uh, me. <laughs> uh, what's your name, Sergeant? Mr. Southern Porter. Milton Joseph, for uh, uh, it to be exact. Milton Joseph. That's right, sir. And no laugh. You must really have discipline. <laughs> <laughs> have you got your Christmas presents all in? Yes, sir. I'm waiting on about five more. About five more. Heard from to go? Yes, sir. What would you fellows like to be doing if you were home now? <laughs> <Are> you <kidding? laughs> He knew the art of talking to people, of getting them to talk to him, and he loved it when they talked back. Hyman Rickover, who helped develop the nuclear submarine. Well, Admiral Rickover, we've been talking about private contractors, labor, education, almost everything else. What do you think is the most important thing to be undertaken at this time? Well, You're looking for easy solutions. The trouble with you is you want easy answers, but you don't know the proper questions. All right, you go ahead and praise the question and then praise the answer. Perhaps the question should be what should be the role of educated or intellectual people in the United States? Now, does that sound like a better question? That's a fine question. Found the answer. The answer is this we give a great deal of service, of lip, we give a great deal of lip service to the educated, but we don't really pay attention to them. We always listen to the so-called hard-headed people. I don't know by that whether they mean that their heads are really hard or whether they think straight. I've never been able to figure that out. I think we'd be a lot better off if we listened to some of these so-called eggheads. Last-minute reports from shipping port indicate that the Admiral's reactor may go critical sometime in the next few days. The Admiral, of course, went critical several years ago. The Admiral felt that effective journalism was the kind that went beyond the reporting of facts and his journalism moved people to action. There was the case of Lieutenant Milo Radulovic, an Air Force Reserve officer. A security board had moved to separate Radulovic from the service because of the politics of his father and sister. Here is Murrow's broadcast. We believe that the son shall not bear the iniquity of the father, even though that iniquity be proved. And in this case, it was not. But we believe, too, that this case illustrates the urgent need for the armed forces to communicate more fully than they have so far done. The procedures and regulations to be followed in attempting to protect the national security and the rights of the individual at the same time. Whatever happens in this whole area of the relationship between the individual and the state, we will do it ourselves. It cannot be blamed upon Malenkov or Mao Zedong or even our allies. And it seems to us, that is to Fred Friendly and myself, that this is a subject that should be argued about endlessly. A few weeks after that broadcast, Ed's telephone rang early. He was still in the shower. The caller was the Secretary of the Air Force, who told Ed the case had been reversed, that the commission of Lieutenant Radulovich was restored. Like many others, Ed Murrow was troubled by the methods that have come to be known as McCarthyism. Unlike most, he faced the challenge. Some friends and associates tried to warn him off, but Ed Morrow and Fred Friendly put together a brilliant documentation of Senator Joseph McCarthy's activities. No one familiar with the history of his country can deny that congressional committees are useful. It is necessary to investigate before legislating. But the line between investigating and persecuting is a very fine one, and the junior senator from Wisconsin has stepped over it repeatedly. His primary achievement has been in confusing the public mind as between the internal and the external threats of communism. We must not confuse dissent with disloyalty. We must remember always that accusation is not proof and that conviction depends upon evidence and due process of law. We will not walk in fear one of another. We will not be driven by fear into an age of unreason if we dig deep in our history and our doctrine. And remember that we are not descended from fearful men. Not from men who feared to write, to speak, to associate, and to defend causes that were for the moment unpopular. This is no time for men who oppose Senator McCarthy's methods to keep silent, or for those who approve. We can deny our heritage and our history, but we cannot escape responsibility for the result. There is no way for a citizen of a republic to abdicate his responsibilities. As a nation, we have come into our full inheritance at a tender age. We proclaim ourselves, as indeed we are, the defenders of freedom wherever it continues to exist in the world. But we cannot defend freedom abroad by deserting it at home. The actions of the junior senator from Wisconsin have caused alarm and dismay amongst our allies abroad and given considerable comfort to our enemies. And whose fault is that? Not really his. He didn't create this situation of fear. He merely exploited it, and rather successfully. Cassius was right. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good night, and good luck. There's no question that the Murrow broadcast on Senator McCarthy played a considerable part in bringing that phase of American history to an end. Eric Severad tells of driving from New York to Washington with Murrow a day or two after that broadcast. He says the taxicab drivers came alongside to salute Ed, and when they entered highway restaurants... People stood up. By the time Ed Morrow became the host of Person to Person, he was better known himself than many of the celebrities he visited on the program. His personal popularity ranked with stars like Elizabeth Taylor and Marilyn Monroe. He was better known by far than the junior senator from Massachusetts. Are you there, Senator? Yes, right here, Mr. Murrow. Good evening, sir. Thank you. Uh, senator, I wonder if you would show us around your apartment a bit? Certainly, anyway. well, fine, Mr. I remember when you were over in England, and I thought you uh, might remember this picture that uh, was taken when my family were all over there in 1939, when my father was uh, ambassador. Oh, I remember it very well. There he is in the center, isn't he? Yes, that's right. And I have uh, my eight brothers and sisters. That's almost the last time we were all uh, taken together, and it uh, brings back uh, happy memories. Well, Senator, you had some uh, rather anxious moments yourself during the war, didn't you? Yes, I did. Uh, you, uh, you were... You were in PT boats, weren't you? Yes, I was during the Solomon Islands uh, campaign. Is that a model of your PT boat, sir? Yes, it is. That was made yes. over at, uh, by some friends of mine over at the Boston Navy Yard. The PT in which I was on, PT 109, was uh, cut in two uh, while we were attacking a Jack destroyer in the, uh, in the, on August 2nd, 1943. Yes. Uh, Senator, um, you do you uh, have a chance to do much reading? Yes. Uh, well, we, I used to very much, and I, uh, I try to do it as much as I can now. Uh, have you found anything that uh, has been particularly useful, or uh, perhaps I could use the word inspirational to you? Well, I do have uh, something here. It was written by Alan Siegel, who, as you remember, uh, was born in New York and fought uh, in the Foreign Legion and was killed in the First World War in 1916. Yes. He wrote that famous poem, I Have a Rendezvous with Death. And. Just before he died, he wrote a letter home to his mother, which I think has good advice for all of us. He said, whether I am on the winning or losing side is not the point with me. It is being on the side where my sympathies lie that matters. Success in life means doing that thing, then which nothing else conceivable seems more noble or satisfying or remunerative, and then being ready to see it through to the end. I think that's probably good advice for all of us. Well, Senator Kennedy, thank you very much for letting us come to visit you, and will you also express our thanks to Mrs. Kennedy? In 1959, Ed began the series called CBS Reports, which is still on the air. One of the most controversial of the early programs examined the plight of migrant workers. It was called Harvest of Shame. This scene is not taking well, place yes, in the country. It has nothing to do with Johannesburg or Cape Town. It is not Nyasaland or Nigeria. This is Florida. These are citizens of the United States, 1960. This is a shape-up for migrant workers. The hawkers are chanting the going peace rate at the various fields. This is the way the humans who harvest the food for the best-fed people in the world get hired. One farmer looked at this and said we used to own our slaves now we just rent them. In 1961, Ed Murrow was appointed director of the United States Information Agency. When he left CBS to take that post, there was a closed circuit broadcast to CBS stations and Murrow said goodbye. For many years I have received credit for what other people have done and I would think it's fair and honest to say that some part of my heart will stay with CBS. I am grateful to the management of CBS for releasing me who have carried what we have done although not always approving grateful particularly for the friendship of my colleagues and superiors and CBS reports viewing audience um, is now about to be increased by one and I wish you all Good luck, and good night. After almost a year and a half of government service, Ed Murrow talked shop with Harry Reisner. They discussed the outstanding staff that Murrow had hired in the early days of radio news. I think in retrospect, I was blind lucky in the people I did find. And I do remember receiving cables from New York when we started building that staff, 37, 38, 39 saying that some of the boys who were reporting did not sound like announcers. Their diction was not quite perfect and so forth. And I kept sending back messages saying, I am not looking for announcers. I'm looking for people who know what they're talking about. Because I believe in you, of course, the audience will come to appreciate that fact. And I think they did. Well, lots of us whose diction is not perfect owe oh, a lot to you. <laughs> lots of people, I think, newspaper editors and some, uh, some news executives of television and radio have always not like the fact that this has been a business of personalities, that Eric Severide was Eric Severide and not just a voice. Do you think that's a was and, and is a defect in news coverage and broadcasting? I think it's a danger, Harry. Uh, I do. Uh, I don't know any way to avoid it. Um, there is a danger that the individual comes to believe that just because his voice is amplified and reaches halfway around the world, that he is therefore more intelligent, more discerning than he was when his voice only reached from one end of the bar to the other. <laughs> this monopolized opportunity to sit behind a microphone, I think that is, is a heavy sort of wine and tends uh, uh, on occasion uh, to cause the individual reporter uh, to think that he is more omniscient uh, than any reporter ever is. In October of 1963, Ed Murrow was operated on for lung cancer. Three months later, he resigned as head of the United States Information Agency. When CBS News moved from its longtime home on 52nd Street and Madison Avenue in New York, Ed and I talked about the old days on a special program called Farewell to Studio 9. It was to be his last broadcast. Bob, one of the infuriating things I remember about Studio 9 was that occasionally we would get through to master control and then they couldn't get it down to Studio 9. And that produced some rather profane comments because we couldn't see why we could get a good signal three 5,000 miles and in New York to get it four floors. <laughs> I think the engineers are going to be slightly <laughs> better. Do you remember, um, I don't know whether uh, this is a, a, a reminiscence that you'd ever care to remember, but it's always been my story. The first time that you ever went on CBS on the air, we'd gone to the Christmas party of the publicity department and somehow it stretched on into the evening, at least for us, And I was practically a teetotaler, you know. I didn't know anything about all this alcohol. And, of course, you were always very circumspect. And as the evening wore on and I remembered I had to do a five-minute news broadcast supplied by the Press Radio Bureau, you decided that I really wasn't quite fit to do it. Do you remember that? If this is being recorded, I don't remember anything about it. (laughs) And I sat in the studio when I was supposed to be doing it, and you did not That's right, and you were going to give me the cut. You were going to give me the watch at the end, and you gave it to me a minute early, and we left 45 seconds of dead air at the end. <laughs> I don't remember <laughs> that at, at all. Sure. <laughs> you were the director of talk, you weren't supposed to be <laughs> on the air at all. That's right. I think <laughs> that was your first broadcast. I well, yeah. yeah. Well, we have uh, some recordings of, uh, of some of the broadcasts, a few of those things that you did, Ed. Would you like to hear any of them? Would you like to hear the, uh, the, the one on the rooftop, the Blitz, in the Blitz? I've never heard it. Haven't you, really? It's probably terrible. Now listen to it now. This is London. I'm standing again tonight on a rooftop looking out over London, feeling rather large and lonesome. In the course of the last 15 or 20 minutes, there's been considerable action up here, but at the moment, there's an ominous silence hanging over London. But at the same time, a the silence that there's a great deal of dignity. Just straight away in front of me, the searchlights are working. I can see one or two bursts of anti-aircraft fire far in the distance. Just on a roof across the way, I can see a man standing wearing a tin hat with a pair of powerful night glasses to his eyes, scanning the sky. Again, looking in the opposite direction, there's a building with two windows gone. Out of one window, there waves something that looks like a white bed sheet. A window curtain, swinging free in this night breeze. It looks as though it were being shaken by a ghost. There are a great many ghosts around these buildings in London, and some of them, companies of ghosts. Yeah, I don't know how you feel about that. I, uh, I find it kind of hard to take. I'll tell you something about that, Robert, that was never reported. I had to stand on a rooftop for six nights in succession and make a record each night and submit it to the Ministry of Information in order to persuade the censors that I could ad-lib without violating security. And I did it for six nights, and the records were lost somewhere in the Ministry of Information, so then I had to do it for another six nights before they would finally give me permission after listening to the second take of six to stand on a rooftop. So I had a lot of time up there. You remember uh, the studio at the BBC? That's right before it was, was referred to as having formerly been a waitress's robing room, <laughs> which in fact meant that it was for the ladies' lavatory. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And all the broadcasts from London came from that during the war. That's right. And one thing that's almost hard to believe now as we uh, think about it, think about it, in those early days, we didn't have any press associations, because the Associated Press, the United Press, and the International News Service, as they were then, refused to sell their services to broadcasters, remember? Ah, yes, and I can remember you, night after night, ending a five-minute news broadcast by saying, for further details, read your daily newspaper. Uh, uh, Ah, that's right. I can remember when I first went to Europe in 1937, I was not permitted to be a member of the American Correspondents Association in London or Paris, because I was involved in that ridiculous thing called radio. All I remember was that uh, shortly after I got to London, he was the president of it. Well, that was in the build-up for D-Day, yes. (laughs) Just happened to be my (laughs) turn. Let me just say to you, then, goodbye and good luck. One of the most remarkable things about Ed Murrow's career as a broadcaster is that he became a kind of unofficial ambassador, not only to Great Britain from the United States, but the other way around, too. He seemed especially skillful in interpreting one English-speaking nation to another. In 1946, just before returning home from London, Ed Murrow broadcast a graceful farewell to his English friends. That leave-taking reveals much of Ed's inner self, his willingness to face controversy, his belief that a man should live a life, not an apology. About nine years ago, being persuaded that war was inevitable, I came here to live. I spent a lot of time on the continent. Young Germans, Czechs, Dutch, French, Poles, and all the rest were repeatedly saying, tell us, you know the British, you've lived there. It is true, isn't it, that they are soft, decadent, have lost faith in themselves and their destiny? And I always replied, gentlemen, you may be right. There is evidence to support your point of view. But I have a suspicion that you are wrong. Perhaps you misjudge these young men who are rather languid and wear suede shoes and resolve they will fight not for king or country. You will remember Munich and Godesberg beside the Rhine, an aircraft flying hither and yon? Do you remember Mr. Chamberlain landing at Hendon with a piece of paper and peace in our time? And do you remember what happened in the next year? That was the period when, whether you liked it or not, you came into your full inheritance. That was the time when you demonstrated, beyond all doubt, that you understood, although perhaps you hadn't read Krausevitz's, that the first duty of the state is to recognize its enemy. We all remember the spring of 40, and the strange names Andrus, Namsos, Narvik, and then how the great German tide spread like a stain over Western Europe. There was Dunkirk, a name which will last so long as the English language. The sea was calm, and the little ships went over and brought the boys back. And how many of them brought their rifles back with them and defeat was not in their face. And there was Mr. Churchill, who mobilized the language and made it fight. Then came the days when Englishmen dug deep into their history and were worthy of their ancestors. Those were the days when most men save Englishmen despaired of England's life, and when, according to reports that came down from the north, they were saying in Scotland, if England is forced to give in... It'll be a long war. I remember Mr. Churchill walking through the East End the morning after a heavy raid. The people cheered him, and he said, They act as though I had brought them a great victory. And there were tears in his eyes. You were all alone, and rather proud of it. That was the Christmas you sang carols in the shelters. You were living a life, not an apology. Now, one tribute. The chairman of the board of the Columbia Broadcasting System, William S. Paley. No one will ever be able to fill the unique place Ed Murrow held in broadcasting. As the originator of an overseas reporting organization unequaled anywhere, and as a great journalist who set standards of excellence that remain unsurpassed, Ed Murrow was a perceptive witness, a courageous reporter and a wise interpreter of the vast events of his time. Few figures in journalism contributed so unsparingly of their talents and proved so effective in their influence. Years ago, I spoke of him as a student, a philosopher, at heart a poet of mankind and therefore a great reporter. Ed was all of these and more. He was a resolute and uncompromising man of truth.